Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Ingenium Podcast Series. This is Podcast 014. My name is David Langford, and I'm currently the president of Ingenium Schools in Los Angeles. I'm really excited about the podcast today. Today, we're interviewing J.W. Wilson, the Executive Director of the Advanced Learning Institute. Okay, once again, talking to J.W. Wilson. Uh, He's the Executive Director of the Advanced Learning Institute and author of the soon-to-be-released book, Cracking the Learning Code. So welcome, J.W. Hey, thanks for having me, Dave. Appreciate it. So, J.W., you've been spending the whole day with our cabinet here at uh, Ingenium Schools and some of the top leaders in the school. So we've been having fun uh, listening to you talk about the learning code applied to education. Yes. So why don't you start off by giving just a little bit of information about uh, who are you and what is the Advanced Learning Institute? Well, um, at the Advanced Learning Institute, we've been doing neurological and genetic research on the basis of learning and behavioral change for the last 30 years. Uh, What we've done is uh, we basically discovered that there's about 7,000 genes that control all neurological function. And what we've done, this I'm simplifying a little bit, but what we've done is in a way we reversed engineers what turns on those genes so we can accelerate the speed of learning and behavioral change. So if those, just a quick way to explain it, when those genes are turned on, it dramatically accelerates the speed of neurological growth, which from a scientific viewpoint is what learning is. Learning is neurological growth, neurological change, neurological transformation. And when these genes are turned on, um, the speed of learning and behavioral change can really happen at astronomical rates. One of the problems we have in traditional corporate, where we spend a lot of our time working with corporations, the leadership group that does work for NASA, um, United Nations, uh, Boeing, um, with groups like that, we've worked with the, the, the Mayo Clinic Change Management Group, we've worked with people like uh, Turner Broadcasting. What we found is that when for corporate learning as well as traditional educational systems, when organizations begin to see, understand the neurobiology of learning, they can be much more elegant in designing their learning and behavior change programs. So your, my understanding is that uh, this learning code is, is part of our DNA. It's built into how we work, think, talk, and act. So how do we actually switch on the, the learning code in a classroom? Well, let's kind of step back a second and talk about how we don't switch it on in a classroom. Um, Really, one of our biggest problems is we have this idea that if we memorize something, we've created learning. But to the people out there that are listening to this broadcast, this podcast, just think about all the things in your life that you've memorized. Uh, whether you graduated college or just went through high school, you could have memorized anywhere from 30,000 to 120,000 things. And think of all the hours and hours and hours of stress and anxiety that you went through to memorize those things. And you might want to ask yourself right now, how many of those things do I remember right now? 
For most of us, it's less than 1%. So um, some of us 3%, especially if you've got a, a brain plan that fit the educational system. But in a way, memorization is not a real form of learning. Really, it's a biological, if you look at it from a biological standpoint, memorization does not turn on these genes that creates long-term memory formation. So in in, in a school, you, you just discounted 90% of what we do. Yeah. It's trying to get people to memorize stuff for tests on Friday. So basically you're saying uh, what we're doing is all wrong. Well, it's not everything we're doing is all wrong. But it, it, I just took that as an example. It's what we were, we're, We've got this saying uh, at the Institute, the Advanced Learning Institute, what you're not aware of controls you. What you're aware of, you can control. And we're, do a lot, we're doing a lot of things in education right now that's very similar to what Plato and Aristotle did in 300 B.C. Somebody stands in front of the room or you look at a computer, they deliver data, we tell you to memorize it. That worked very, very well in a world where information was seen as static. Back in the time of Aristotle and Plato, and even up until the 12th century, what we thought was there was a very limited amount of information that the authorities like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Hippocrates had. And what we did was we studied those tomes of theirs, the, 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 the information that they had. And you could do that in 18 years. We could lock you in a box, St. Thomas Aquinas, when he started the first church schools. What we did is we locked you in a box, and we had you memorize. Some experts say it was about 3,000 things. you got to remember, in the 12th, 13th century, there wasn't a lot to memorize. We had the, you know, the plow, the wheel, and a few other things going for us. So you could do that. But now we live in a world where information is doubling once every 18 months. And you can't use a strategy that was designed for the 12th century in a world where, I mean, in the 12th century, we thought information was static. In a world where information is doubling at every 18 months, if you do, you end up with the educational systems we have today, which are basically failing us. In places like Mississippi, Tennessee, you can send a, kids that go through all the way through seventh grade, they can't add, they can't read. It's amazing how you can spend so much time in a system and have people not learn. So uh, today you've learned a little bit about uh, what Ingenium's all about, and you've met some of the people that are here. And uh, we don't grade our students. We don't have performance evaluations for teachers. Uh, we're really engaged in creating learning experiences for students. So tell us about what you can add to what would be a good learning experience for students? Well, we have a thing in our research. We found that what we tend to have thought about is that learning is an, is an event. If I pass the test, I've learned something. If I read a book, I've learned something. If I listen to an audio tape, I've learned something, right? But what real learning is, is when you encode information that you can act on and increase your ability to survive and thrive in the real world. So think about, you know, on the audience there, think of all the books you've read, all the seminars you've gone to, all the tapes or audios you've listened to, or even podcasts like this one, but you haven't changed. Why? Because learning is not an event. A learning doesn't happen just because you took a test. Learning does not necessarily happen when you take a test 
or memorize something or even read a book because it doesn't necessarily turn on these 7,000 genes that create, create the environment in your brain that causes neurological change. So how do you do that? Well, events don't necessarily cause transformation. In nature, all transformation occurs through a process. Caterpillars to butterflies, seeds to flowers, coal to diamonds. If you're not enter entering a process of transformation in order to change neurological structures, you're not really creating learning. Let me go back. What learning is, is after you've turned on these genes, what learning is, is it's changing the relationship between neurons and adding new neural connections between neurons. So and if, can, it, can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what learning is, is it's literally changing neurological structure. A simple way to say it is if you're not changing and adding to neurological structure, the kind of learning that needs to take place so you can go out in the real world and make an impact. So what are you saying real learning is? Okay, so real learning is neurological change. It's adding new neural tissue through synapses, new neurons, um, or changing the existing relationship between the neurons. And so if what you're doing is if your environmental stimulus isn't doing that, you're not creating learning. And the easiest and the quickest way to do it is through a process. What is that process? <laughs> well, we call it the cycle of transformation. There are really four stages to the learning process. Information, action, feedback, integration. Each one of those stages is different algorithms of neurochemicals uh, and different neurological structures are activated. To give you an idea, think about your own life out there who listening to this podcast. When you're a child and you walk past the stove, you got information. Or your mother, you walk past the stove and your mother said, hey, don't touch the stove, it's hot. For the majority of us, we eventually reached out and touched the stove. The information that the stove was hot didn't cause the neurological change in us. What did? What caused it to happen is when we reached out, we touched the stove, we took action. We physically reached out, we touched the stove, we got burned, we got feedback. So the first three stages is information, hot stove, two, action, touch hot stove, three, feedback, damn, I just got burned. So without those three stages, you don't have the neurochemical combinations to allow the genes to turn on and the neural structures to start to change. But there's one last stage, it's called incubation. If your mother would have whacked you in the head and said, go upstairs, you stupid little idiot, I told you not to touch the stove, your stress hormones would have knocked the learning out. So what we find is that if we allow people to take time to go into an incubation stage after they've gone through the information, action, um, feedback stages, if they can go into an incubation stage where they literally take their brain offline, the brain naturally will start to encode the information in a way that changes the neurological structures so you don't forget it. So at, in Ingenium, we have capacity matrices, and they're built on these four same four processes of learning, right. stages right. of learning. So we try to get not only designer learning experiences around that, but we try to get children to reflect on their learning and relationship to those four stages. So. Yeah, and so what you, what you started this kind of this part of the podcast off on was so when, when children or adults go through this four-stage process, it's natural. So it's like it's like 
basically the brain wants to learn through discovery. And so really these four stages are all the processes of discovery that are necessary to allow us to learn more information. You're not delivering data to the brain and telling it to memorize it. What you're doing is saying go out and, 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 and take action in the real world, get feedback and learn from that, that kind of cycle so that you can apply this in your life. So are you basically saying we don't learn through instruction? There is no, this is the fascinating thing. When I talk to, uh, talk to educators, most of them don't know this, but in biology, there is no process of instruction that causes transformation. All, the whole, all learning and all really change in, 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 in biology is through a selective process. What that mean is, what that means for learning is that the brain selects in information that resonates with what's meaningful to it. And all the other stuff drops out. So without meaning, without understanding what's meaningful to the, to the individual, the individual can't select in. He doesn't know how to select the information. He doesn't have criteria by which to select the information in. So we've got an educational system that never asks the child what's meaningful to him. And that's why 90% of us, other, our research finds at the Institute, other than engineers, nurses, and teachers, the rest of us come out of the educational system, and we don't really know who we want to be in the world. Why? Because we haven't stimulated our own structures of what's meaningful to us. We don't know how to select in the information. Meaning is the criteria by which all information is selected into our biology. So the mistake is that we think if we treat the, and we got really this from John Locke in behavioralism. Really, we think behavioralism started with Skinner and Watson back in the 50s, but it really started much sooner than that with John Locke when he said the brain is a tabula rosa. Basically, what it is it's a blank slate, and all you have to do is pour information into it, and it will stay. Well, the science basically proves John Locke wrong. He also, the science also proves behaviorism wrong. You can't force somebody to learn something. They're only going to learn on what's meaningful to them. Yes, you can pour information into somebody's head. They can pass a test, but then the information drops out of the neurological system. The only information that sticks in the brain is that which is meaningful to the individual who finds that the information to deliver them to them can help their personal thriving or surviving. Awesome. So what I was about to say is uh, at Agenium, uh, one of our big focus areas is we don't concentrate on extrinsic motivation. We're really deep into intrinsic motivation. So can you talk a little bit about the difference and what cause, what happens when you have intrinsic motivation? Well, other than tests not being a, a great predictor or, um, or even a, a creator of learning, <clears throat> what we've done is we built a system built on extrinsic motivators. If I reward you, you will do it. And if you do it and I reward you, um, you'll learn it. Or if I punish you, if you don't, the next time you'll learn it better. Uh, basically, grades are a form of reward punishment. An A is a reward, an F is a punishment. So what we found is that all real learning happens when you're intrinsically motivated. So intrinsic motivation comes from chasing what's meaningful to you. 
So if we're not helping students understand, I'm going to go back to what I said a little bit before, if you're not helping students understand what's meaningful to them at a deep level, they don't have the criteria but which to select in the information. So what we do in education instead, because we haven't really understood, you really can't blame education. They weren't aware of the, this new science and the research that's coming out. But basically what we do when we intrinsically motivate somebody, authority motivates them, we, and we motivate them through reward and punishment, what we have to do in a way is threaten them. Punishment's a threat, but withdrawing a reward is a form of punishment. So anytime you're in that environment, think about, everybody listen to this tape, let's think about this. Have you ever taken a test in your life and you weren't anxious and fearful about the grade you were going to get? Well, that's because somebody was going to extrinsically reward you. And what happens is when you're afraid, when you take something out of fear, your stress hormones go up very high. And when your stress hormones go up very high, it literally interrupts the biological process that enhances quick. The reverse, if, you're trying to, if you are trying to extrinsically motivate people, so if you don't do this, you're going to have to stay in at recess. Or if you don't oh, do this, I'm God. going to call your parents. Or if you don't do this, this is going to happen to you. Well, what what you happens end, then? Yeah, well, it's, what you end up doing, we call it whack-a-mole. What, the minute you use reward and punishment, the only way you can control people and get them to do stuff is with reward and punishment. So think about this. We, this is what we just talked about in this conference. Um, I think it was Jay. I said, Jay, um, if I gave you a million dollars right now, I had a million dollars in my hand, and I would give it to you if you ate my sock. Would you eat my sock? He said, I sure would. And I went to Jake, and I said, Jake, if I took a gun and put it to your head, and I said, I'm going to shoot you in the forehead if you don't eat my sock. Would you eat my sock? And he goes, I sure would. So what happens with extrinsic motivators is you will do things in the presence of the extrinsic motivators. The minute they're withdrawn, you revert back to your old behaviors. So that's, that's, why, we work, that's why we use them, because they work in the moment. The, well, you can get people to do stuff. Prison works really well when people are in prison. But you know what the recidivism rate of punishment is in our, in, our, in, our, in our institutions? Well, after five years, it's like 70%. So if it worked, people that went to prison would transform their neurological structures. It would transform their behaviors. Extrinsic motivators do not cause change, effective change. It can change it a little bit. But in general, it doesn't cause effective change or le real learning happens in what's called the rear associative areas of your brain. So we've got, really, we've got an educational system that thinks test is, is going to get people to learn, which doesn't work from the biology, and the fact that the more we reward and punish people, the more they're going to learn, which we found is now the opposite. So uh, at Ingenium, we're trying uh, fervently to move in a whole different direction with learning, create new learning experiences, move away from reward and punishment, those kinds of things. Um, other than punishing students, then where do, or rewarding them if they do well. So where, where do students get the internal reward? Okay. Because a lot of parents will say, hey, well, you know, where's my son's certificate? <laughs> right. Well, let's go back to what you're doing. You're creating adventures. So in a way, your children aren't going to a classroom. They're going to an adventure every day. That's very different. Just think about your own, you know, your own life 
when you had to go to class every day, you had to memorize, you had to listen to the teacher, you were bored, you finally got out. Imagine if you knew you were going to an adventure every day. And that adventure, you knew you were going to discover new things that could help you be more successful in the world. That's what life is all about. I mean, John Dewey said this way back in the early 1900s. Basically, the more real the learning environment is, the greater the learning. We knew that, you know, 100 years ago, yet somehow we got off track. And we hope that the science is the learning code and what you're doing at, at, at your school is creating an environment where people can now learn more naturally than they ever had before. Because learning has become such a painful, restricted process that really nobody wants to do it. So you're saying that all the, the national programs we've had, like No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top, and we've spent billions of dollars basically doing nothing. Well, the, the research is there. It's very clear. Look at No Child Left Behind. We spent $100 billion, $100 billion over 10 years. We turned this into a really restrictive process. And do you know what happened to grades, especially math scores? They actually were growing faster before No Child Left Behind. So we came up with all these great ideas to push a broken system higher, harder, and what did we get? Greater inefficiencies. Look at Steve Jobs. He has a wonderful quote. It's kind of hard to find. But he spent billions of dollars, got the best schools, the best teachers, the best computers, the best everything. And you can probably go on the web and find this. And he has a quote. I'm going to butcher the quote a little bit. But he basically said, we don't know what went wrong. We spent all this time, all this money, all this effort, all the best everything, and our grades actually went down in comparison to the other schools in the area. Now, you said Steve Jobs, but I think you meant Bill Gates. Bill Gates, I'm sorry. Excuse <laughs> and the me. Gates Foundation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, excuse me. But yeah, that's what happened. That's what, and he, I think he was shocked. They didn't expect that to happen, but it did. And that's because they're missing the point. They're thinking you can take a broken system, we can throw technology on it, and we're going to create greater learning. It'll never happen. I often think of uh, quotes from Dr. W. Edwards Deming, and one of the things Deming said is, we're being killed by best efforts. <laughs> yeah. These are two really good examples. Right. Well, if I think you've said it. If you put good people in a bad system, yeah, what's a, the quote? A, a bad system will defeat a good person every time. Yeah, and that's what we've got. We've got wonderful teachers, wonderful administrators, wonderful parents that want their children to learn. The kids are great. They're born great. But what do we have? We've got a bad system, and we defeat the, every all of us. The 70% of teachers in one study would not be teachers again if given the choice. And that's who's teaching your children. 70% of people that don't want to be there. I know one of the last uh, comments when somebody was visited one of our schools is uh, they said two things. They said, wow, it's really amazing to go around and see happy teachers all the time. <laughs> and then the second thing they said is uh, uh, any child would love coming to this school. That's exactly right. So that, that's a pretty good comment on the, the well, job we're doing. Right. Well, so you guys are you've used Dr. Deming's principles and kind of the, the science, the new sciences to, to build your program on. But here's the fascinating thing. People will come through your hallways and see how great it is. And still they'll go, well, I want to send my kid there. And then then some parents, um, we found this in other schools that we support. What they'll do is the parents then go, yeah, I want my kid to have that. But then what happens is the kid starts getting it, 
it's an environment where you're not grading them every five minutes. You're not forcing test scores. You're not rewarding the teachers. And then the, pe- t- the parents start to freak out because they go, well, this isn't how I learned. How do I know my child is learning if I don't test them every five minutes? Have you found that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you do? We do it through portfolios. Mm-hmm. Help them understand, look, this is exactly what your child is learning. And this is the documented proof of that. Right. You don't need a, a score of 98. Right. And similar to that, we found when parents and really administrators and school boards understand the real science of neurobiology, they go, oh, I see what you're doing. And that changes everything. So, JW, I want to thank you. And uh, JW is going to be the keynote speaker at our uh, international conference, March 2nd and 3rd from the Ingenium Schools. And you can go to our website to find out more information about that. So thanks, thanks, JW, for spending the day with us and doing this podcast. Well, I thank you very much. I have to say one thing before we sign off here, and that is meeting your teachers and your administrators here was a gift because what we've got is people that are willing to import information and not be trapped in the old environment of what learning has to be. They're imaginative, they're innovative, they're creative, and they're willing themselves to discover how to transform the world through transforming the way we're doing things. It's a real gift. Thanks again, JW. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Ingenium Schools, you can go to our website at ingeniumschools.org. That's I-N-G-E-N-I-U-M schools.org. Thanks for listening and join us for our next podcast on the Ingenium Podcast Series.